for the preaching of God's Word. This morning, we're back to our regular sermon series after the holidays, so we are back in the book of Daniel. I invite you then to turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. If you have read Daniel before, uh, then you probably realize that here in chapter 7 we've reached the most difficult part of the book, or the puzzling, baffling part of the book. Daniel is made up, of course, of two very distinct sections. Chapter 6, excuse me, chapter 1 through 6 are all narrative. They're stories of uh, Daniel in the king's court. But the last six chapters are completely different. They were entirely different. No more narrative, no more stories. Now we enter a, a strange new world, a world of visions and dreams and prophecies, a world that has puzzled readers ever since it was first written. And, you know, to be honest, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some work for us to get through this, to make sense of some of this. These chapters are not easy to understand at all. But I do hope and pray that you always walk away with at least a a grasp of the main point at hand. And that's going to be my goal, not to explain every detail, leave you with the main point each week. Nevertheless, the last thing that we saw in Daniel chapter 6 was Daniel enduring a night with wild beasts in the lion's den. And that just sets the stage for what's to come now because... During another night, a nighttime dream, he now sees beasts coming forth to attack the people of God. Daniel chapter 7. Let's read it and then ask God's favor in understanding it. This is God's word. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Now he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, and its wings were plucked off. And it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, In this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had great that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and it seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and the judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it in pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall rise and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. And my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. And this is God's word. Pray with me again. Oh, Lord, even when you speak with simple, straightforward, childlike language, our sinful minds so often remain ignorant. Our hearts so often remain hard. Our our, Our faith so often remains weak. How much more so when you speak in words like these, hard to understand. Father, our only hope is that we know that wisdom is a gift from you. That understanding comes from the Most High. We pray then that you would send your spirit in the name of the Son. That we might understand your truth. Give us Christ, our wisdom, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, Daniel dreams this dream. And he responds by admitting how his color changed. He was anxious, alarmed. He says that twice. And perplexed. If this was Daniel's reaction to this vision, it's understandable then that we would probably respond the same way, right? What do all these things mean? How in the world are we to make sense of this? No wonder then that so many Christians at times kind of avoid prophetic literature. They leave Daniel in Revelation to the experts. It's just so hard to make sense of it all. And it's frustrating, isn't it? When you start to try to sift through all the different opinions on it. Right? You don't have to look far to, to find someone who can identify every horn and every head and every wing uh, in this chapter. It's, it's all too easy for us to think, well, it's going to turn out in the end okay, isn't it? Why do I have to worry about the details? Well, brother, while, while I definitely understand and sympathize with you in this sense, part of my goal uh, in these next few weeks and months is to show you just how profitable and, and encouraging and hopeful that prophetic literature is to the Christian life. 
But if we're to see this, we need to understand that, uh, that no matter how uncertain we may be about all of the details here, in prophetic literature, the main point is always clear. Always. It's never hidden from us. And it's when we understand the main point that the details uh, and even all the specific end time positions that we might hold to, all those things really become secondary. Today then, I want us to grasp the main point of this chapter. And if we're to grasp the main point, we need to remember the first half of the book. I mentioned before, Daniel's 12 chapters. Six narratives, six stories, and six chapters that center around prophetic dreams. And at first glance, in, in the eyes of many critics, they seem to be two different books in no way related to one another. But when we look closer, we can see how the first part of the book is actually meant to prepare us for the second part of the book. You know, as we uh, look at this ch- uh, these last six chapters, we can look and say, you know, the, the, the author, the divine author, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't just speak to us in words that are plain and didactic and childlike. Maybe kind of like the book of Romans, right? Here is truth, and here's a logical deduction, a logical argument of the truth. But rather, in these chapters, through these visions, through these dreams, through this prophecy, the Holy Spirit is illustrating with us, to us with otherworldly images, with word pictures. And he does this in order to leave an indelible impression upon our mind. But to see that, we need to understand in the first six chapters, he shows us the same truth, but kind of just plainly played out in Daniel's life. We are to approach these chapters not as a newspaper article, like just plainly accounting the truth, but in a way that we see and experience and feel the truth deep down in our bones. So the first half and the second half communicate the same truth in different ways. Well, how can I say that? Well, think about when we come to chapter 7 here, some of the parallels to the previous chapters that we've already seen. Here we see Daniel dream a dream where uh, four beasts represent four kingdoms. And then God establishes his kingdom that puts an end to them all. This should sound very familiar. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed a dream of a great image that was made up of four parts. That that, uh, illustrated four kingdoms. And then God set up his kingdom, the stone that crushed them all. Remember? There are a lot of similarities here. It's the same truth looked at from a different perspective, a different camera angle, maybe. Think of uh, as well that after Nebuchadnezzar dreamed that dream, what does he do in the next chapter? He actually sets up a physical golden image. But in the same way, yet in reverse, the real beasts of Daniel confront him in the lion's den in chapter 6 but then are followed by the dream beasts in chapter 7. In chapter 3, for example, you have the peoples, the nations, and the languages that are called to bow before this great statue. Now in chapter 7, the peoples, the nations, and the languages, the same wording is used, now bow before the Son of Man. In chapter 4, you have the world's most powerful ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, turned beast-like in his humiliation. Of course, here then you have earthly rulers described in beastly terms. At the end of his humiliation in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar bore witness to God's everlasting dominion and a kingdom that endures forever, he says. But now here in chapter 7, the Son of Man is the one who is given that dominion and everlasting eternal kingdom. Much more could be said here, but but I hope you get the point. The point is that what we're going to see in the next few months is how the stories in the first part of the book teach us about the prophecies in the second part of the book. And vice versa. Yet in all of this, the first and the second part, the focus, the main point remains the same. And that is that God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. His rule is almighty. 
His reign is eternal. His promises are unbreakable. Kings and nations and empires will rise and fall. They do not represent the kingdom of God. The enemies of God will wage war on the saints. But no earthly kingdom will last. Only the kingdom of Christ will endure forever, which is the church. Human history has been carefully planned. It's all kind of heading toward a great climax where all of God's purposes will be fulfilled and accomplished in Jesus Christ and in his people. That's the point. That's the message. And it's important for us to to grasp this so that we're not distracted by all the details here and the symbols, but also so that we're not distracted in everyday life by the rise and fall of earthly kingdoms or the persecution of God's people or the apparent successes of evil or even the difficulty of our present circumstances. This chapter in this book calls us to direct our gaze upward to the first cause To fix our eyes upon God and how his purposes are being accomplished for us in Christ. That we might look at history through that lens. Let's open this up further as we keep this big picture in mind. Just two points today or two headings for our outline. And they're hopefully very easy to remember. The beasts and the beauties. You see the beasts. And then the beauties. Let's consider these beasts. I want to think about the description in two, uh, verses 2 through 8. But then the angel's ex- explanation as well. Kind of taking those things together. Which is in 17 through 27. Now. As we begin. Um, let me make a quick kind of note about prophetic literature. In uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 12, verse 6 through 8, God likens prophetic visions and dreams to riddles. That's what he calls them. Um, And that's important for us to keep in mind. It's not straightforward revelation. And God's talking about Moses there. He says, Moses, my servant, I speak to face to face. Not like other prophets where I speak in visions and dreams, which are riddles. Um, We need to keep in mind that this kind of of prophetic literature is supposed to carry a real element of mystery. It's part of its point. It's not meant to be exhaustive in detail. We're not meant to be able to identify every horn and every head and every figure here. That's not its purpose. And we need to remember that going as we go along. I mean, think of the difference between um, like a historical event and then a, a photograph of that historical event. Uh, and then a painting of that historical event, or, and then maybe an abstract painting of that historical event. Like the abstract is not meant to communicate what would a photograph would communicate. It's a different way of illustrating, uh, of affecting our emotions and our, our, our minds and our senses to the same truth. That's what prophetic literature is meant to be. It's like an abstract painting. It's not meant to be a photograph where we can just, okay, this refers to this, 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 got it. Symbolic. How do we make sense of this symbolism? Well, Daniel dreams a dream that's more likely and better called a nightmare, really. In verse 2, he sees the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. In scripture, the sea is the symbol of chaos and disorder and ungodliness. It's why the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep, bringing order from disorder. It's why Moses, uh, God led Moses and the Israelites through the Red Sea. It's why Jesus calmed the sea. It's why, as we saw in the book of Job, that the sea was that, that, that realm where Leviathan dwelt, that was mysterious and unknown, but also evil. The sea is a symbol of this chaos. And, and so the, the opening scene here is, it carries a sense of fear, a sense of the unknown, a sense of uncontrollable destruction. And when we look down at verse 17, we actually, in the explanation, see that the sea represents the earth. 
It's the earth. It's a way of speaking about the ungodliness and chaos of the earth. It's from this fallen, ungodly, rebellious earth, and maybe even, of course, hinting it from the underworld as well, that four beasts emerge up out of it. The first thing that should strike us is that these beasts do not kind of rise up autonomously. Make note of the fact that heaven is what stirred up the great sea. These beasts come forth at God's command. That's the overall emphasis of this chapter. God himself is sovereign over these beasts coming forth. God himself is sovereign over evil. God himself rules and ordains everything that comes to pass. Even the rise and fall of wicked men and wicked rulers and wicked kingdoms. But another thing that ought to immediately strike us is that just like we considered back in chapter 4, sin makes all of us animal-like, beast-like. Whether we're talking about an individual, whether we're talking about uh, an organization, a, uh, um, a corporate nation, sin distorts the image of God. Sin turns us into something subhuman in relation to how we were first created in the image of God. And that's behind these, these kings described as beasts. The, the animal-like qualities represent what is sinful and wicked about them. And each and every one of us, in some sense, are beast-like. Each and every one of us could fall into this same depth of evil and depravity here, but for the grace of God, restoring the image of God in us through Jesus Christ. So fallen world, God stirring them up, sinful creatures emerge. Let's walk through these beasts one by one, each of the four. In verse 4, the first beast, beast is like a lion with eagle's wings. Its wings are plucked off then. It was made to stand like a man. The mind of man was given to it. This should remind us of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in his humiliation. Remember, he was brought down to earth, literally. Giving the, the mind of man should remind us of how God made him feel and experience his humanness when he exalted himself in his pride as if he was a god. It's also noteworthy that the prophet Jeremiah speaks of Nebuchadnezzar as a lion and Ezekiel speaks of him as an eagle. We'll come back to this in a few minutes. Then we have the second beast in verse 5. This one is like a bear raised up on one side. Or it's raised up on one end, maybe standing on its hind legs. Uh, the picture is a bear that is ready to strike, ready to spring into action. It has three ribs in its mouth, so signifying it's already begun its destruction. This kind of signifies the, uh, the savage power and the lust of evil men to build their own empires, to conquer the world. But even still, it's, it's then told to devour even more. God is sovereign. He commands this evil beast, this evil empire, to continue its devouring. We have this third beast in verse 6, a leopard. It's got four wings on its back and four heads. Kind of a terrifying image, a flying leopard with four heads. <laughs> Again, though, these, these descriptions are not meant so that we would form a picture in our mind. That's not its point. You try to draw this on a piece of paper and uh, it's going to look ridiculous. The symbolism communicates specific things. A flying leopard communicates ferocity and speed. Four heads mean that it, it can see in uh, every direction at once. It can't be surprised. It has no weakness in its armor. You're not going to sneak up on it. It's not going to be easily overtaken. And then we get the fourth beast in verse 7 and 8. It receives the longest description because we're told that it's much different than the others. It's terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It has iron teeth. It conquers and crushes through its speech. 
But whatever is not conquered by its speech is then trampled on by its feet. It's sheer force and power. It also has ten horns. Horns are a symbol of strength in the Bible. Ten then is, is kind of uh, um, hyperbole. It's, it's, it's massive, excessive, unparalleled might and strength. Uh, But then we see that one of the horns stands out from the rest. It has the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Uh, Could maybe be translated speaking pompous things. It's described down in verse 23 as a kingdom. And the horns represent specific kings, rulers in this kingdom. So this little horn is one that supersedes all the other horns. And the picture is that he he rose to power at just the right time through the uprooting of three others. Like the other three made it seem as though the empire was going to fail. But then here he comes as the most powerful of them all. The mention of the eyes ought to bring to mind the lust of the eyes. The pride, the haughty eyes that are abomination to God. Self-glory, arrogance, and And then we have the mouth speaking great things. Later, we're told that it spoke against the Most High God. These were blasphemies. These are blasphemous speech and making war on the saints. We're told in verse 25 that he will try to change the times and the laws. That's a statement of self-deification. He's claiming all power. He's claiming to be God, speak to God. Define reality for everyone else. And while the other beasts kind of naturally rise and fall, this beast is only defeated by the Ancient of Days throwing him in the fire, verse 11. So four beasts going from bad to worse, each more frightening than the one that came before it, Four beasts that represent four kingdoms. And the sobering picture is of evil and war and persecution. Especially with the fourth beast until God finally comes and conquers in the end. What does all this mean? Who exactly do these beasts refer to? That's the million dollar question really. You're certainly, like I said before, you, you certainly don't have to look far to find all sorts of different opinions on this. Well, let's see, America, their symbol is the eagle. Hmm. Russia's the bear. Hmm. China's the dragon. Maybe that's some imagery there. What do these beasts refer to? What, what, how are we supposed to interpret this? Well, um, on one level, I mentioned this hinted at this earlier, but there is a parallel with Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2. And if you think back to that, we were told then that Nebuchadnezzar was the first kingdom, the head of gold. And so that really seems to fit here. Um, The clear parallels between the first beast and Nebuchadnezzar, both in history and in scripture. And so following this, many say, well, uh, the first beast was Babylon. So that means the second beast was the empire that followed Babylon, the Medo-Persian empire that ruled the world. Uh, The raising up of the bear uh, symbolizes kind of a balance of power between uh, the two superpowers, the nations. And then the most popular interpretation, then you get to the third beast, is the Greek Empire. Because Alexander the Great, he was swift and ferocious like a flying leopard in conquering the world. And of course, what followed the Greek Empire was the strongest and greatest empire of them all. The Roman Empire. Iron teeth. A string of Caesars ruling. Signified by the horns. And you have uh, one horn that specifically wages war upon the saints. Formal persecution. Or maybe the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Following this, many of our Protestant reformed forefathers saw this fourth kingdom being fulfilled in the Roman Catholic Church. Papacy. There you have a war of speech, blasphemy, and false doctrine. There you have a pope, a man, who sets himself up as a sort of God. He claims to be the vicar of Christ on earth. He claims that when he speaks from the chair, he speaks infallible words, 
he is then like this beast who tries to change the times and the seasons. And, you know, for a long time, uh, during and before the Reformation and after the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church did put Protestants to death prolifically, burning them at the stake. War with its iron teeth, its fire, uh, false doctrine. And if you didn't bow to that, you were trampled by its feet. You were put to death. And, you know, brethren, in all honesty, there's, there's a lot here that fits. Our own confession of faith identifies the office of the papacy as an office of the Antichrist. And I believe that's Right? However, all that being said, just like I argued when we talked about chapter 2, I do not believe at all the purpose of this dream is for us to identify specific kingdoms with these beasts, as if it represents that kingdom and no other. Why do I say this? Well, for one thing, the angel, when he gives the interpretation... He doesn't name kings or kingdoms. If the point of the chapter was you need to know human history in detail, God could have clearly said so. But he didn't. Furthermore, if these beasts represent four kingdoms, it'd do little good for us who lived so long after the fall of the fourth kingdom here. The Roman Empire is long gone, even though the papacy does still exist, yes. No, I I believe that trying to identify specific kingdoms with these beasts actually leads us away from the main point. The main point is the specifics of the beasts aren't detailed because they are meant as a general representation of earthly kingdoms in general. Every earthly empire. Whether we're talking about America, whether we're talking about Rome, whether we're talking about China... Every earthly kingdom is beastly in some sense. Even the most Christian of Christian nations, Puritan New England, was still beastly because it was ruled by fallen, sinful men. And it represented an earthly kingdom rather than a spiritual kingdom. That's beside the point. The point, do these beasts represent Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome? Absolutely. And it's amazing as we read this and and then we see later in history Daniel's prophecy fulfilled. But that, it would be wrong to say that that, that the vision then ends with that or or, or the identification ends with that. Because do these beasts represent other kingdoms that will rise and fall? Yes. Do these beasts represent uh, specifically the last one? The one that wars against the church? Does, does it represent um, uh, the final man of sin, the final Antichrist at the end of the age? Yes, again. There are many Antichrists in the world. Right? Nero was an Antichrist. Herod was an Antichrist trying to put the infant baby to death. Hitler was a type of Antichrist. And there's more Antichrists to come. The fourfold nature of these bees point us to how history is cyclical. There's nothing new under the sun. The beast rose and fell with Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and it will happen again. Empires rise and fall. Some are powerful. Some are fleeting. Some are cunning. Some are blasphemous. Some bring persecution. But none of them endure. Whatever our location or time in history, frightening beasts will arise. The war against the Lord and his anointed will go on. Sometimes it's really bad. Sometimes it's not so bad. We need to see and recognize that we wrestle not with flesh and blood. But against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. This is why God pulls back the veil here. So we can see what's really going on in human history. So we know that there's a real war in the spiritual realm. So we're not shook as if something is wrong when evil persecuting empires and kings rise and seem 
to destroy the church. Or to look at this and say, ah, God told us this would happen. But I see who's really in control. And I see whose kingdom will ultimately conquer and endure. But to bring this all together, we need to now turn to our second point. We need to consider the beauties. We saw the beasts, now we see the beauties. As fascinating as this all might be, the beasts particularly, we need to kind of recognize that the focus of this chapter is not on the beasts. The focus is right in the middle of this chapter. The focus is the throne room of God. In verse 9, the scene suddenly and dramatically changes. In contrast to the tumultuous, chaotic sea, we're brought into the throne room of heaven. In contrast to the hideous, arrogant, boastful monsters, we see the Ancient of Days, the Eternal One, dressed in beautiful white garments. In contrast to the rise and fall of nations, now appears one who truly endures through all times and seasons. The Ancient of Days. And he's calmly seated on his throne. He's never in a panic. He's never taken by surprise. He's never undecided. He isn't worried about the ferocity of these beasts. And all the focus in this throne room is on him. He has a thousand thousand serving him. The heavenly armies waiting for their charge. His clothing is is white. This symbolizes purity and nobility and transcendent splendor, blinding luminosity. He's white. White garments, he's never compromised his perfect righteousness to build his kingdom. His hair is white too, symbolizing eternal wisdom and dignity. He has fiery flames around his throne. This is the, uh, the awesome, mysterious, and powerful, blinding transcendence of where he dwells, his throne. Like the burning bush or... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking around unharmed in the fiery furnace. The throne uh, blazes, but it's not consumed. His chariot is a chariot throne because it has wheels on it. Wheels that are ablaze and it signifies that he can take his power anywhere in but a moment. He's not confined to one location. It's not like, oh, if if you're near him, you're safe. But if you're in the far country, he can't reach you. Before him flows a stream of fire, the fire of judgment. Our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews chapter 12. This is a scene then that 10,000 times 10,000 stand before him. And the court uh, sat in judgment and the books now are open. This is a scene of the final judgment. This is a scene of the day of the Lord. This is a scene when we will all stand before the Lord and give an account for the deeds that we have done in this life. Then suddenly in verse 11, Daniel's attention is drawn back to the beast. Because he hears these pompous words coming from this little horn. And right away, immediately, the beast is killed. His body is destroyed, thrown into the fire. It's kind of anticlimactic. But that's the point. It's just getting right to the main point here. The, the point is simply history and world domination belong exclusively to God alone. And no matter who that beast is, no matter who the little horn is, there's no question of its destiny. God will judge and rule and conquer. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but our God remains on his throne. He rules over all with wisdom and goodness and power and righteousness. And this is a, a comfort to us, brethren. God is at war with those who afflict his saints. We don't have to be uncertain about the outcome, despite how dire things might look in this season. But as I hinted, there are multiple, plural, beauties here. There's two more I want to draw your attention to, because now, suddenly, dramatically, someone else enters the presence of the Lord. And let me just say, you don't just waltz into the presence of the Lord. And stand before him. 
Behold, verse 13, with the clouds of heaven, there came up one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Think about the worthiness of this being to walk right up to the throne of God. Are you going to stand there? I hope you'll pause for a second and take this all in. As as confusing as all this is, this is one of the high points of all the Old Testament. The beauty of this passage is one of the most awe-inspiring sections of the entire Old Testament. You you have here, uh, in contrast to the four animals, uh, animal-like beasts, a true man appears. Nothing beastly about him. In contrast to the fourth beast being destroyed by the presence of God, here is one who is worthy to stand before this awesome God and transcendent throne. In contrast to the arrogance and violence and ferocity of the beast waging war to conquer the world and to devour, here is one who is worthy to receive dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples might serve him. And a dominion that will never pass away. In contrast to the sinful humanity who rebelled against God, defaced the image of God into the image of creaturely animals, here is a true man. Man as God created man to be. He has the true dominion. That Adam was commanded to exercise but failed. He has the glory to which all others have fallen short of the glory of God. He has the everlasting kingdom and rule in contrast to the few years of mortal man who no matter how much he conquers always returns to the dust. Daniel isn't told who this son of man is but we know. We know, don't we? Didn't our Lord Jesus say that all the law and the prophets speak of me? Don't you know that Jesus' favorite title for himself was the Son of Man? It's used over 81 times in the Gospels. We know, of course, that the Son of Man designates that Jesus is truly man. But even as Daniel says here, he is like a Son of Man. Emphasizing that he's also truly God. What else do we know about Jesus in relation to to what the language used here? Well, think of of Psalm 2. The nations rage and the people's plot in vain. They rage like beasts. They plot like speaking blasphemous words. But the Lord says, I have set my king on Zion. You are my son. I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. We know from Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, Lord to Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Son of Man coming to sit at the right hand of the Father. We know from the Gospel of Mark, Jesus appeared and he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. I'm going to receive the kingdom. That's why I've come. Daniel sees the receiving of the kingdom. 12th chapter of John, we heard this earlier. Now is the judgment of this world, Jesus says. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. Sounds like the destroying of the little horn, doesn't it? And Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. When I ascend in crucifixion and to the the right hand of the Father, all nations, all languages, all peoples will come to me, the gathering of the Gentiles. Even the cloud imagery is striking. He tells Caiaphas, Jesus does, right before, uh, Caiaphas was a high priest, right before his crucifixion, he says, From now on, from now on, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is what Daniel sees here. 
He sees Jesus ascending to the presence of God to take his rightful seat at the right hand of the Father. And when we break this down in the narrative of Scripture, we know it. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Following his death and resurrection, Jesus says to his disciples, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Verse 14. To him was given dominion. That's why you go and plunder the nations with the gospel. Claims that dominion. Even in Acts chapter 1, he's surrounded by his apostles. And he was lifted up. Right? He ascended up into heaven on a cloud, it says. The apostles are watching him go up. And Daniel here in chapter 7 is on the heavenly side of things. And he's watching Christ ascend in this cloud to take his seat at the right hand of the Father to rule and reign. Brethren, we see the royal coronation of the Son right here. True God and true man. And it happened hundreds of years before Christ. Excuse me, Daniel saw this hundreds of years before Christ ever appeared on human history. But there's one last thing here that we need to see. And I hope this can aptly bring it to a conclusion and make it applicable to us. I mentioned before three beauties as I've tried to uh, categorize them for your memory. Three beauties. Father and the Son. But what about the third? I want you to notice that in verse 9 we read of thrones, plural, that are set up in the presence of God's throne room. We know the Ancient of Days sits on one. Of course, the Son of Man will sit on the other. But, but what about the other thrones? But then we also get verse 18. We're told that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. The Son of Man, as the second Adam, represents us in the same way that Adam represented us. We all suffer the consequences of Adam's fall. But Christ acts on our behalf as well. And we share in the benefits of all of what he has done and earned. And we think about this as Jesus being the head of the church. Jesus is uh, the head of his body. He's the champion of the saints. We know that he, as he inherits the kingdom, all of his people inherit the kingdom as well. That's why Ephesians 2.6 says that in him we have been, have been, past tense, Raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. That's why 1 Corinthians 6.2 says, don't you know? Don't you know? Haven't you read Daniel? Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Brethren, if you are in Christ today through your union with him, you are seated with him in the awesome throne room of God. And in your life and in his church, he is fulfilling his Rule and dominion and building his kingdom. The father then is beautiful here, sitting on his throne in splendid white garments. The son is gloriously beautiful here, truly God and truly man. But the bride of Christ, the third beauty, having been cleansed from her sin by his blood, rid of her beastliness. By his righteousness, dressed in these same white garments of splendid divine righteousness, shine forth in this chapter as well. And this is the the burning image that ought to stick in our minds. Yes, there are many antichrists who have and will appear and they will wage war on us. Even one at the end who's going to be worse than them all. But we are considered Jesus. Standing before the judgment seat of God, presenting his blood and righteousness on your behalf for your vindication. And he being your champion and your head, you can be assured that you are saved from all your enemies. That you rule and reign with him forever. And no matter how bad things may get here on earth. You see, brethren, how... In this sad life, we are so easily distracted. 
Distracted by evil governments, evil leaders, and evil culture. Distracted by disfavorable election results, economic recessions, laws of Congress. Distracted by disappointments and failed plans and anxieties about the future. So distracted that we forget that these things are but evidence of a spiritual war. So distracted that we forget that every event in history has been carefully planned by the Ancient of Days to accomplish His purposes. So distracted that we forget that the rule and reign and purposes of God are all yes and amen in Christ for us. That's why this vision was given. To shock you. So that you're not distracted. Yes, we live in a day full of monstrous beasts. Some of them are given great authority to kill even the saints and triumph for a while. Some of those beasts have human faces. Some of them are more institutional in form. But this will not last forever. We are to see and fix our eyes above the sad distractions of this world. and Be fueled by love and hope for what's going on in the throne room of God where good will ultimately triumph in this universe. That's what Daniel wants us to see. And that's why the scriptures then point us in the New Testament to the kingdom of God that is found not in government or people or nations, but in the church. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, Making known to us the mystery of his will. What is the mystery of his will? What is according to his purpose? Purpose he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. The church is God's purpose and plan to unite all things in heaven and earth. Brethren, let us take that to heart. Believe these words and be fueled by hope, even as baffling as some of these things may be in the here and now. Amen. Let's pray.